Our scripture reading for this Sunday is from Galatians 2, 11 through 21. Feel free to open up your Bible and follow along. 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But, it, in our but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you right now, a living and true God who has given us your word to open up, to explore, to understand more about who you are. And as a result of that, we understand more who we are. By knowing what you've accomplished, we then understand our purpose. And Lord, as we come across this passage today, there is so much to be said here, Lord. But I pray that you would uh, use this time to speak the things that need to be heard to the hearts of the people in this room right now. God, I am a firm believer that through the Spirit of God and by opening up the pages in this book, that that transforms and changes people to live differently than they ever have in the past or ever thought they would live. There's a miraculous work that is at play even in this moment right now between your spirit and the hearts of the people and the word of God. So would you do that work, go before us, work that we cannot do on our own. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, when I say amen, feel free to get a little charismatic and say amen too. It's already a little cavernous in here right now, so don't be afraid to talk. Nobody will know who said it. It's dark, you're good, okay? Uh, what are you consistently afraid of? What in your life is the reoccurring theme that you are consistently afraid of? The thing that sometimes you even feel in your gut. The thing that, say, around 3.15 a.m. wakes you up in the morning. Are you afraid of failure? Are you afraid of driving? Have you had a 
car accident. Maybe you're dealing with the trauma of even getting back in a car. Are you afraid of your kids misbehaving in public? Are you afraid of not being the parent that society says you need to be as a parent? Are you afraid of maybe never finding that special someone that you have so long awaited to meet? What is it that you are consistently afraid of? Are you like a progressive insurance commercial just fearing that one day you will become like your parents? What is the thing that haunts you? We all have fears, like every single one of us in this room experienced something, right? There's something that reoccurs in all of us. But I think what we're going to see today is there is something that I would make the case that we all struggle with significantly at some level when it comes to fear, and it's this. What the scriptures call the fear of man. The fear of man. This is not a phobia of people, but what it is, is it's a, and I would define it like this, caring too much about what people think of you or how you perceive they think of you. This is a tormenting thought. This is a tormenting place to live for many of us, caring too much about what people think or what you perceive they think about you. In fact, many of the fears that we might call surface fears have this fear underneath them. So the fear of failure might not be failure itself that you're afraid of, but it's that other people see you fail and you let them down from an image that you want to uphold. Maybe you have a fear of losing your job or a fear of running out of money, but it's not that you're afraid of the effects of money being gone and you skip a meal, but there's a social image that you need to maintain. Maybe your kids behaving a certain way and not behaving a certain way is a big fear for you, but it's not really about your kids as much as it is the image in which you're presenting. Or maybe it's your kids even being upset with you and you letting them down because you need them to like you to justify you as a good parent. Like the fear of man is this thing that creeps its way into all of our lives and sort of lays underneath the surface of these exterior fears that we have. We care desperately about what people think of us. Even the guy that says, I don't care what anybody thinks and I'm going to live my life to prove to you that I could care less what people think. And he walks around just like being a jerk to everyone and making sure that you see him as a guy who doesn't care what you think. He has built his whole life as a reaction to be something that he thinks you need to see him as, right? Like you, we can't escape this great fear of man. I used to be afraid of not being the funniest guy in the room, especially in certain settings, because it was my humor that was the way for me to feel loved artificially and accepted artificially and conditionally in front of other people. Like, name the thing, and you probably will find the sphere of man that lies underneath it. And here's the problem with it. The fear of man will control your life unless you can replace it with something better. It will control you. 
you will be a subservient to whatever that fear is or whoever that person is. So the title of our series in the book of Galatians, we're going through this book in the New Testament. It's called Good News versus Fake News. And the gospel is the good news. We see Paul fighting for people to have clarity to understand. Gospel simply means good news, and he wants them to understand the purity and the goodness of the gospel, the good news. He is fighting aggressively for the good news to be proclaimed. And the problem is, when fake news creeps in, Jesus plus something then equals your salvation. Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus going to church, Jesus plus being uh, a social justice advocate, Jesus plus fill in the blank. You have now polluted the very beautiful and good news of Jesus, and it's no longer good news. It's a counterfeit for the real thing. And so Paul is reminding the church in Galatia, which is churches, plural, of the good news and to not believe anything different. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther called Galatians the Magna Carta, Carta of Christian liberty. He says that it's basically the Christian's declaration of their, their freedom and independence. He says the epistle to the Galatians is my own epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. Like he really loved, like when you're a kid and somebody likes something and you go, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? Martin Luther's like, I did. I married it. I love the book of Galatians. It is a book that proclaims the freedom that every Christian needs to hear. And in this passage, you have this epic fight that's breaking out in, in Christian history. There's a fight that is, that is forming. You can even feel the tension. If you were able to kind of concentrate and listen to what was being read by Julie, you could listen to this tension that was between two Christian heavyweights, Peter and the Apostle Paul. And they are fighting over this very thing, the good news of Jesus versus the fake news of Jesus. Peter was an apostle with a capital A. He was one of the pillars of the church. In fact, Jesus himself said, Peter screws up a lot, he messes up, but I'm going to build the church on this guy, Peter. Peter knows the truth. Peter is a Jew. He knows what is true. He knows that Jesus came, had a chosen people, and when Jesus came in, he grafted in the Gentiles. He accepts all who would put their faith in him. But right now in this story, he is overcome by the fear of man, he wants to present a certain image, and now he is denying the very thing at which Jesus literally stood before him and lived out and showed him. And then you have Paul in the other corner, the, the author of Galatians, along with more New Testament books than anybody else in the Bible he wrote. He was the goat of Jews, like we talked about before. He was the one that had everything memorized. He was rising to the top at a young age, like he said. He was a persecutor of Christians. God gets a hold of him, and now his declaration is the good news, and so he is going up against Peter, two pillars of the church, going at it against each other, and this is the way it opens up. But when Cephas, aka Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Those are harsh words from one Christian leader to another. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So the Jews were God's chosen people we see all throughout the Old Covenant. They're the people in which God is accomplishing his covenant and his purposes. Before Jesus came, he gave the Jews this set of laws, this set of rules to abide by. It was broken up into three different categories. There were 613 laws or rules that they had to follow, and they were divided into moral, civil, and ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is what we're talking about here today. The ceremonial law was this law that focused on cleanliness. Not just because it's like good for your hands to be clean, not just because you're healthier that way, but the ceremonial laws reminded the Jewish people of how holy God was. They had to go through all of this effort of sacrifice, circumcision, eating, no pork allowed. I mean, you had to eat clean food. You could not associate at a dinner table with a Gentile. There was all of these steps of cleanliness that you had to go through. And every time they were following those extensive rules, what it was doing was it was there to remind them of how altogether different God is than us. How much altogether holy, set apart, and clean, and righteous God is, and how distant we are from that, and the effort at which we have to take in order to even be in his presence to clean ourselves up. This is the ceremonial laws that were being practiced. And then Jews, once Jesus came, Jesus opens up the invitation to all, not just Jews, but Gentiles, and says, listen, you guys could have never obeyed the law. You didn't obey the law. You weren't clean. You couldn't do any of this in the first place. I'm not coming to destroy the law, he tells us in Matthew. I'm coming to fulfill the law. I'm coming to be all of that that you could never be. And then I'm going to open up the invitation of salvation to all people who believe. It doesn't matter your race or background. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. You are invited into the Christian faith through the righteousness, the cleanliness of who Jesus was and is. And as a result of that, and this is the most important thing to hear today, as a result of that, there's no hierarchy in the Christian faith. There's no table for Jews, table for Greeks and Gentiles. There's no table for blacks, no tables for whites. There's no table for the liberals and a table for the conservative Republicans. All gather around the blood of Jesus and unite there. And that's a message that Paul is willing to sacrifice his life for and in the moment call out his brother Peter who's being a coward because Peter doesn't want to associate himself with the Gentiles. Why? Because Jews have come in and they have begun to change and tweak the good news of Jesus by saying, we're going to keep our culture and tradition, which means you have to be circumcised and you have to eat clean food. And if you don't, we won't dine with you. And so now there's this division of table 
And I don't know about you, but the table, like in our family, we are dying. We have five kids. We are dying just to get our whole family together once or twice a week around the dinner table. Because it's in that place we find that we remind ourselves that we're family. We see the intimacy of what God has brought together within our family. It is a key place. And it's the same thing here. You're communicating intimacy and family when you sit around a table. And Peter, caring too much about what these Jews that have come in think, has begun sitting with them and away from the Gentiles. It might just be a change of chairs, but to Paul's point, what he's getting at is, this is a change of history. If you don't sit and dine with the Gentile people, we are going to put a ax to the spreading of the first century church. It is so important right now that the church that the people around see the church unified, and I would make the argument right now in probably the most divisive time in all of culture that I can remember, there is nothing more important than us to dine at the same table with those that are different. It is worth the fight. It is worth putting things that don't matter in their rightful place and remembering what does matter. So the fear of man, number one. That was an intro right there. The fear of man makes you a hypocrite. When you care too much about what people think, you end up laying down the values which you believe in, which you've bought into, and you go with what they want you to do instead. It's exactly what Peter is doing here. He said, uh, when Paul called out Peter, he said, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Like, you bought into this thing, Peter. You believe this to be true. And some jokers came along, and now you're all of a sudden judging everybody else, even though you don't believe that in the first place. Hypocrisy is almost always the result of the fear of man. Acts 10 actually tells us of a time when Peter was, uh, he had a vision once. Peter had this vision in Acts 10. Um, He was traveling and he was out and he was really hungry. He went up to pray and he was, you know, coming out of Judaism and he couldn't find anything to eat that was clean. And all of a sudden he gets this vision. This is how it goes. Uh, This is a crazy passage. I love this. Acts 10.10. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And all the hunters in the room said, amen. Peter is afraid to eat because it's unclean food. He goes into a trance and God gives him this vision that I am making all things clean for you to eat. You no longer adhere to the ceremonial law of eating clean food because Jesus has made it clean. Uh, Peter argues with God, which is never a good idea. And God responds to him and he says, I'm not going to eat this common food. And and God responds, he says, "Uh, what God has called clean, do not call common. So I'm, I'm picturing on a sheet with four corners, like 
pulled pork, brisket coming down, lobster tail, frog legs, shellfish, steak, maybe some St. Louis-style ribs, and God saying, listen, you're free. Like, this is a gift for you. Take it. You don't have to adhere to the law anymore. Jesus is all about freedom. Like, I will never be a vegetarian. I'll say it twice. I will never be a vegetarian because of the grace of God on my life. All right? I'm not judging you if you are. I'm just saying, gosh, if there's anything that evokes the joy of the Lord in my heart, it's thinking about God just serving brisket down on a sheet for me and saying, take it and eat it. This is good. Peter knew the truth. Like he was the one that went through this trance and had this experience. He knows the truth, and now he's afraid of what people think, and he's going against the very words and values of what God has communicated to him. I used to be in sales before I became in before I became a pastor, vocational ministry. And I never liked the interview process of sales because they would always say, like, close me. Tell me, sell me on you. Like, why should I hire you? It was very awkward and felt very narcissistic. But I talked to a friend and he said, here's a line that you just need to drop every time. I said, what? He said, cash is king. Like, tell him money is your ultimate motivation. That's what you want. I was like, well, that's not my ultimate motivation. Like, I want to take care of my family and I'd, I'd like to sell some things. It'd be nice to make some money. But Jesus is king. Cash is not king. And he was like, just say it. And I was like, no, I'm not going to say it. Like, I will stand my ground at the stake. I won't say it. And I get in this interview, and this guy's like, tell me why I should hire you. And I kind of started answering, and he just kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And I finally just said, cash is king. That's why. Then I heard like this, I felt like Peter. Like I just denied Jesus. It was like such a quick, stupid little moment where in order to please this man and get what I wanted, compromised everything that I believe. It probably isn't that big of a deal to say that out loud, but it was the condition of my heart. I cared more in that moment what he thought of me in getting the job than I did my own values and beliefs. And that's what happens. We become hypocrites when we have the fear of man. The second thing that we see is the fear of man makes you a coward. The fear of man will make you a coward. When you care too much about what people think, you become weak. Peter, uh, when those people showed up, it says that Peter drew back and then separated himself. And here's this guy that's like, Jesus, I'll go to the grave for you. I will die for you. And some jokers show up and he just shrinks back and begins to hide from the beliefs that will change the world, that he knows will change the history of the world. This is the same guy, Peter, who Jesus told him, you will deny me three times. He said, no, I won't, Jesus, I would never do that. And the first time a little servant girl comes up to him and says, I saw him with Jesus, he freaks out from this little girl and begins to say, I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't know what you're saying. He starts cussing and yelling and swearing. He's terrified of this little girl because he cares what people think because in that moment he became a coward. How many of us are afraid of conflict, which is what Peter was afraid of in this moment? He didn't want to have that hard conversation and say, this is not the gospel at all. How many of us are afraid of conflict 
because we can't bear the thought of people not liking us. Can't bear the thought of just having contention between someone even when it's the right thing to do. And as a result of that, Peter led all these other people into this hypocrisy lifestyle. It says in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Another great leader in the church. See, Peter is a coward in this moment because he cares too much what people think. And then what follows him are a bunch of other cowards. I think niceness in the church has been substituted. I'm sorry, love in the church has been substituted with niceness. You don't really see the word nice in the Bible. We can all be very nice to people, but what we're called to be is we're called to be loving toward people. We are called to be kind, but nice is sometimes just keeping the peace at all costs. And that's nowhere to be found in Scripture. Like conflict, struggle, persecution, those things are found in Scripture. Redemption, healing, those things don't happen until there is hard conversations to be had. Paul actually did the exact same thing that Peter should have done. Some people have even hated on Paul for this passage of Scripture when he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. But you see what happened? People are following Peter. Peter's doing this very public thing. And so Paul knows the call-out needs to be public right now. The call-out doesn't always need to be public. But when Peter, who is a pillar of the church, he's influencing the church in this way, begins to go in this direction, Paul steps up and has the hard conversation. He doesn't care in that moment what people think. He cares about what God thinks and the mission of his church. And because he did that, the continuation of the church spread happened. If Paul would have been a coward in that moment, I don't know if we would be sitting here even knowing who Jesus was. Because the spread of the good news of Jesus took courage from a man who only cared what God thought and not what people thought. Christianity requires courage, but there is an ease to the courage when you know the one that you're following. So you might say, my personality is just conflict adverse. I just don't do it. If you're a follower of Jesus, there will be suffering, there will be conflict in your life. It's just going to happen. And you fixing your eyes on Jesus in that moment and obeying what he says to do, that's going to be the only way in which you can do it. One of the things that we say, one of the phrases, it's actually a passage of Scripture, it's Ephesians 4.15 says, Paul says, speak the truth in love. So I'm not by any means, and Paul's not saying by any means, just go around being a jerk to everybody. We have enough jerks within the church, and we don't need more of them. But what we do need is we need courageous people who can do two things. It's a balance, okay? This is how we talk about it. Speak the truth. Some people are really good at speaking the truth, and they're really big jerks about it. And then it says, in love. So those two things have to go together. If you're just, I'm going to be loving to everybody, but I'm never going to speak the truth, well, you're a coward, and you're kind of doing what Peter was doing. If you're just going to aggressively speak the truth, you know, with a cardboard sign and yell at people that are walking by with a bullhorn, that's probably not going to be real effective either and display the love of Jesus. Speak the truth in love. There's two ways to fall off that horse. Just really quick, how many of you guys, well, just a moment of honesty, feel like it's easier to speak the truth without love in this room? 
I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand for that one. Okay, good. There's a lot of conflict-averse people here. Okay, got a couple. Um, how many of you feel like it's easier to fall on the side of just love? Ashley, by the way, you should have raised your hand on that last one. Oh, okay, thank you. All right. How many find it easy? <laughs> that was the call-out that I was talking about we shouldn't do. Um, how many of you feel like it's easier just to kind of be in the love quadrant? You know, just like, it's all good. Okay, thank you. Gosh, there's like four people that raise their hand, a lot more people here, but that's okay. It's awkward, I know. All right, so just keeping this in mind, fixing your eyes on Jesus gives us the ability to speak the truth in love, to have the hard conversations we don't want to have, but to have the hope of God healing and redeeming it because it's driven and spoken in love. All right, third and final point. The fear of man is a treadmill. The fear of man is a treadmill. I hate treadmills. I hate running, period, but then you add a treadmill to the mix, it's like, forget it. It's like zero accomplishment while suffering. I'm not going anywhere. This is terrible. I feel like fear of man is very similar to that. When you care more about what people think, you end up being a slave to the very person that you're trying to please. They rule and reign over your life. They are the God. And whether they like you and approve of what you did, great. Or they don't approve of what you did, well, darn it. There goes my life. Now I have to, you know, and you just do this whole dance where you're trying to keep these people happy and you're on a treadmill, not going anywhere. It doesn't ever fulfill. In the voices of the Jews that Peter is listening to, they have an agenda that is not love at all. They're walking into the room. They want to feel better about themselves. Whenever you see separation and um, division, it's oftentimes because someone is trying to elevate, maybe every time, trying to elevate themselves above others, which is the opposite message of Christianity. That's what they're doing, and they want Peter to join in on their treadmill and follow what they want him to do. Proverbs 29:25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The word snare is um, translated or could be said as a trap. So you think of like an animal that's vulnerable and caught in a trap. When you fear people's opinion more than you fear God, you're kind of in this trap that you can't get out of. You're very vulnerable. Um, we had our house infested with skunks. I've shared this very strange story with some of you before. Um, but during this, during this time when I was a kid, we captured a couple skunks in these cages and we were in southern Missouri at the time, so we had a lot of great counsel about what to do when you capture a skunk in a cage. And they said, you can shoot it right there, but you can actually walk right up to them, even though the cage is like made out of wire, and they won't spray you. And I was like, show me, you do it first. And they didn't. Like, the guy just walked up, and the reason is, is because they're afraid, they're so vulnerable that their one defense mechanism is taken away from them because they're afraid if they spray, it will get on them. So picture that. When you fear man, you're like a skunk in a cage. The only response that you have, the only attack mode that you have or way to get out of it is removed from you. And you become subservient to the conditional, unloving, selfish motives of the people that you're trying to please. When your joy and contentment is predicated on others' behaviors, welcome to the cage or welcome to the treadmill. 
You become dependent on something that you never had control over. You can't control people's responses to you. You can't control if they'll like you or not. But you're putting all your stock into that. I think there's a lot of families right now. We have a lot of families at our church, and we've experienced this too, just as a family with kids. Um, society does lay an unbelievable level of expectation on you as a parent and the way that you should parent your kids. It's unreachable. It's unattainable. It is condemning. And to be honest with you, just after five kids, and I know some of them have casts on and stuff, it's not really going to protect them from much because you can't do all of that in order to save and protect them. And I think many of us jump on social media and we're looking at this, we're like, okay, this is how you parent, you gotta do it this way. And, the, and it, you feel the judgment from afar from others if you don't do it that way. And then it begins to be this way in which you parent out of fear of what they think of you. Or maybe you're desperate for your kid to love you and be the healthiest kid around and to be a division one athlete and all this kind of stuff. And before you know it, they're let down and then you're devastated and crushed because you needed their approval. Uh, Jenny Allen, my wife shared this with me, um, has this great kind of philosophy that she comes up with where she says, basically you just choose a few things that are priority as a family for you. You pray, you seek the Lord, and you find your values, what are important to me, and then you just highlight those and you let a lot of the other stuff go because you can never control it in the first place. So I think the thing they gave up was like, she said, I'm just done with broccoli. Like, I'm done trying to give my kids broccoli. Like, if they go their whole childhood and don't eat broccoli, they'll be okay. That's just not one of our values. But forgiveness, kindness, um, knowing the truth of God's word, those things are primary in our family. Um, another thing to think about, too, is some of us have this strange fear of man or we need the reconciliation in a broken relationship to happen. It has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, I'll never be happy. Maybe you've been hurt or wounded by someone, and that person has never apologized, never said what they need, and you're just wait, you know, just hanging by a fingernail onto life. Like if they don't come back and apologize for what they did, I'm just gonna go crazy. You'll never be able to control their response to what they've done to you. I heard a counselor recently explain it like this. Um, it's almost like getting hit by a drunk driver. You're laying on the side of the road, and probably what needs to happen is the ambulance needs to come and get you, and then you need to probably have emergency surgery. You need to start rehab, and you need to kind of get on with your life, but you're refusing to get out of the road until they, that drunk driver comes back and apologizes to you and kind of owns the crime that he just committed. He's not coming back. Oftentimes, he's not coming back. So who in your life has wronged you, has hurt you, and you've not been able to move past that because their response to it means everything to you, and it means you can now move forward in life. I've counseled with people who have literally had dead family members or friends say things and do things that hurt them that they cannot move past. It's like... I do believe that we will resurrect from the grave one day. But that's a, probably a ways away, I'm guessing. So you need to find a way now to get on with your life and give that to the Lord and not be hindered by their never coming back and making things right.
as I was just going through this whole passage, it was like it sort of just hit me this overwhelming wave of how deep the fear of man goes in me to my core. How much I care about, I really want all of you guys to like me. Just honest confession. I want you to really love me. And if you don't, I have, it hurts. It's really hard. But I think it's true for all of us. And we can strategize around this and try to figure out ways in which we just can stop caring. But I'm going to give you some really depressing news and then some really good news. You can't stop caring what people think of you. You cannot stop fearing man. If you are a glass and you're filled with the fear of man, you can't pour it out and then just remain empty like, I just don't care what anybody thinks. The only way to solve this problem, the only way, is to empty it out and be filled with an understanding of the love of God for you. There's no neutral ground here. You're either afraid of what people think or you are fully believing God's love for you. That's your great escape. That's the great way to outsmart Satan's scheme that Peter fell for. The fear of man will control your life unless you can replace it with something better. Paul's message is simply this. Listen to this. This is his response to the whole thing. By the way, there's a million things in this passage to talk about. So if you're seeing other things, yes, but I can only preach on one thing right now, and this is it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me. Who loved me. Do you believe that? And gave himself for me. God has assigned to you what you need today in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty. He has given you the priorities. He has given you your limitations. And no one else can do that. God is faithful when you are unfaithful. No one else does that for you. God loves you with an unending, unconditional, overwhelming amount of love. And there is no one out there, including your spouse, who can love you with that same type of love. You are legally justified, to Paul's point, legally justified and innocent before the only judge that matters, the greatest judge of all, and no one else can declare that verdict over you. Replace the fear of man with the love of God. Allow yourself to be filled with his love. Let's pray. Lord, it's overwhelming to look at pillars of the church who struggle with this. But it's also kind of comforting, too. Lord, I just confess myself right now, Lord, I confess that I am plagued at times with the fear of man. I care way too much about what people think. And sometimes it dictates my calendar. Sometimes the fear of man for myself and many in this room, puts us in a position where we compromise the values and the things that we believe to be true and we become hypocrites. Lord, sometimes I'm a coward when it comes to sharing my faith. 
Sometimes we're so afraid of what people think and we forget who you are. Lord, would you remind your people today in this church, would you remind us of your love? Would you remind us of your strength? Would you remind us that when you declare us innocent and justified, that we don't have to go around like vultures trying to pick off approval from other people. We can sit full of your love. We can sit content and we can sit, we can sit fully experiencing the joy of the Lord. So would you do that work before us today, Lord? And I pray that as we worship you right now, God, that we can have a stronger sense of your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue to sing some songs, but we also are going to take communion today. So we take communion every Sunday. And the way that we do it is um, I'm going to invite everyone up, and you will just come up to the tables here. Pastor Gavin and I will serve you the elements, and then you'll take those back to your seat. If you have been baptized, we encourage you to come up. This is a uh, this is a meal for believers, but if you have not been baptized or maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, uh, we would love to pray a blessing over you. As we say all the time, we believe all people are welcome in the kingdom of God, so we would just invite you up in a way to just cross your arms so that we know to pray a blessing over you. And for the kiddos, same thing for them. If they've not been baptized, we want to pray a blessing over them, and they get a Hershey kiss. If an adult wants a Hershey kiss, we can, we can work that out too. So, um, but I'm going to go ahead and invite you guys up. It's, it's a time where we remember the sacrificial death of our Savior Jesus. He was physically beaten. He was physically killed. He was a real person. And he substituted his life for ours. That's why Paul says he was buried with Christ. And his resurrection is something that we look forward to. He was the first among all to be resurrected. We look forward to one day being resurrected as well and joining with him in eternity for heaven. And so this is a time where we reflect on that through this means of grace. So I'm going to go ahead and invite our people to come on up. And uh, by our people, I'm sorry, I mean our um, volunteers first. That was really confusing sounding. Um, and, then, and then everybody after that is welcome to the table. So we are invited now to the Lord's table.